Hello and welcome to the 200th episode of FinTech Impact. Yeah, surprising me to me too. It's been this long. But for those of you who've been with me from the beginning, thank you for sticking it out. And for you, those of you discovering the podcast, you have a great opportunity here, or this is a great one to jump onto because for the big ones, I tried to bring on bigger experts and I've managed to uh, hook a big one today in Gavin Spitzner, president of Wealth Consulting Partners. Gavin is one of the more recognized fintech experts in the US and consults with, I can't even begin to imagine how many major players on the state of their advisor technology and the future development of it. So I can think of no one better to talk about the future of advisor technology than Gavin. And with that, here's my interview with Gavin. Gavin. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jason. Great to be with you. Gavin Spitzner of uh, Wealth Consulting Partners. Tell us about what it is you do. What do I do? Let's see. I do a, I, I guess I'm at the stage of my career where I know a little about a lot of things. Um, so, so end up getting pulled in a lot of directions, but I'll start with my 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 purpose, my motivation at this point, and then I'll get more into what I do and, and maybe a little bit of my background. That's a better way to answer the question, quite honestly. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So. <laughs> I would definitely say I've got more and more clarity in my head over the past few years about why why I'm in this field and what what does get me up in in the morning excited to to go at it another day. So I'm all about getting better advice to more people and helping drive better engagement between advisors and clients, both initially and then ongoing as as life changes as it does. I mean that is trying to encapsulate. Everything I do and how it relates to technology and practice management, business strategy, uh, it's all about that. And, you know, you think about what's happened over the past 18 months beyond whatever financial impact there's been to to individual people. Everyone's life has changed. Everyone's outlook has changed. Um, what matters to them changed. Goals have changed. You, you name it. So, you know, I, I, and I tell this to all my clients, I don't care if you have a plan on file for all your clients, if it was done pre-COVID, assume that it's meaningless, right? There's just such an opportunity. We have such an opportunity right now to make a difference in, in our clients' lives. That's that's what motivates me and how I think about the role of technology, of data, how we engage clients to, to make meaningful, make a mean, meaningful impact in our clients' lives. And well, yeah, you have a unique lens on the industry because you get to basically consult with so many different institutions that you get to really help for lack of a better term, grease the wheels on how that can be delivered and manage the efficiency of that. So if I have a superpower, it's that. It's my network that I've built up of just you know amazing leaders in wealth management firms and advisors. And I mean, that's at the end of the day, that's what I do is I study the best practices of advisory firms, advisors on all of these things and think about it, distill it. And not that I'm going to help a firm just copy what another firm's doing. Everyone's always interested in, you know, what are my peers doing? What are my competitors doing? And that's an input, but then it's, all right, what, how are you going to be different? How are you, who are the clients you serve, who, who you want to serve? What makes them tick? And then figure out, okay, what are the technology? What are the, what's the investment solutions? What are the talent? What's the talent profile that we need in our organization? What are the processes to really deliver a, a modern, differentiated, scalable, client-centric, advice-led experience. And, and that's a, you know, that could be a good place to kind of kick things off is, I mean, as you know, this industry, it was built up through a product focus, through a, a sales focus, not a, not an advice-led proposition. 
and unfortunately, we uh, many many advisors and many institutions still carry the institutional legacy of that origin in their DNA and trying to break away from that product-centric view of the universe or that product-centric view of monetization or service is just something that it's the old, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? They've been, the institution has been doing that for, in some cases, insurance companies over a century, right? How do you get them to break that, that way of thinking and adopt something that's almost alien to them, quite honestly? It, it cannot be, it cannot be understated how difficult the challenge that is from a court, from a cultural standpoint. And frankly, there hasn't been any motivation, right? Yeah. A long, the longest running bull market of all time masks a lot of, of woes and conflicts. And it just, you know, the bar is not where it should be in terms of what a client should expect out of a relationship with an advisor. So people uh-huh. can can be a little lazy. And, and you talked about insurance broker dealers. You know, I'm not one too. I don't, I don't, you know, cast stones at any specific channel. I find I do that. Go there's, ahead. There, there's, <laughs> yeah, there's great executives, great advisors across yeah. the board in the in the U.S. In you know whether it's a bank, insurance, BD, IBD, RIA. There's great folks everywhere. It's just not your point. It's not in most places. It's not institutionalized in terms of this is how we will ensure that we are delivering a client-centric advice-oriented relationship where it always, always, always puts their interests first and we're here to to help guide them. See, I think I likened this to a Dilbert comic I once saw that basically said we need to be more client-centric and Dilbert's like thought bubbles like, oh, great, he learned a buzzword. He's like, okay, so what does that mean? Well, it means that we should focus more on the client. For what reason? So we can sell more product. And it was like, that was the conversation I was having a couple of years back. And I'm just like pulling my hair out. Like, no, you can't go back to the old premise, right? You have to discover what that means going forward. And I'm starting to see better implementations of that. I'd like to say, at least I feel like everybody's coming along in that channel of thinking. So it, it's, it's, it's good. Now let's it, talk. But about- it requires a, just a, a fundamentally different mindset of in the old days, people came to advisors because it was the only way to access the markets or it was the only way to, access information, right, pre, pre-internet. pre And we still, you know, a lot of folks live in that mindset of, I'm the all-knowing wizard. That's my importance. That's my value is, you know, I got to show people how smart I am. And so when you think about prospect meetings, it's still very, very much, I need to show you how smart I am and show off my, my knowledge. And it often devolves into a lot of talk about the markets and investments and just things that are in the comfort zone for a lot of advisors versus, and frankly, it's a whole lot easier. Just ask better questions, get the client talking about themselves. That's client centricity. Don't go in assuming whatever they tell me, I know where I'm going to go in terms of the solution, but you know, really make it about them. And once you have that, that mind shift, it's frankly a whole lot easier and you're going to deliver obviously much better outcomes to your clients. Yeah. It's interesting. I've, I've talked about this in terms of practice management meetings. We're all or just consulting where I basically have said, look, let me give you the experience, let me give you the difference between client centricity and, and and product centricity and its actual experience from a prospect we dealt with where you know we do our typical thing and sit down with them and discuss their needs and just keep on asking questions. And I would say those meetings should be the first meeting should be 75, 25. At most, you're you're talking 25% of the time. And usually it's just to get more information out of them as to where their pain points are. So you can just try to find ways 
you can help them even in that moment versus that same, and then that same prospect at the end of the meeting is like, wow, like this meeting was so different than the other two I just had with other advisors. And we're like, well, what were those like? Well, they had me talk for five minutes and then they reached into their briefcases and pulled out a sheet of paper and said, this is the portfolio I put you in. And by the way, if you don't like it, don't worry, we will make a change. And it's like, oh, you're just, they were just waiting to basically just give you a product. Like the solution was already in their suitcase. It was already there. Like it was just waiting for which of these sheets am I going to pull? And, and clients, you know. most clients don't know any better. That was my point before about the bar. Yeah. The bar is unfortunately fairly low. And mm-hmm. if you look at the research, I know you, you track all the research too around mm-hmm. when clients leave. And it's not about performance. It's not a lot about their technology. Communication. It's yeah. Communication. Yeah. It basically, it, it tells you if you do a good job responding to phone calls or emails, you're not going to get fired. Well, that bar is not very high. No, no, it's just uh, honestly. Well, the sad thing is, is the bar is not very hard yet. It's this is it's still the number one reason people leave is I don't hear from them, which is just utterly right. staggering. The technology issues. Yeah, those are those are there. But the reality is, I think you're right. It's it's they don't know any better, I think, until they experience better. Once they experience exactly. better, I'll just trumpet the four seasons here. You think high end hotels are all similar. But then you go to a really nice Four Seasons resort and you're like, okay, this is what it's like, right? <laughs> like you're, you're just, you know, you understand what it's like to be catered to at a, at a different level when you go to certain places. And I think once you've had that, you really understand what the spectrum is as opposed to what you believed it to be before. So this is a great, that was a great starting point, quite honestly, talking about what we're all here for, essentially. So, and I've said this, I think you may have seen this tweet a couple of while back is technology is not your strategy. Technology needs to be in service to your strategy. Exactly. Um, so the strategy and the the purpose for being has to be bettering the lives of people because frankly that is what financial advice in its purest and best form is all about so that's the foundation talk to me about the what you're seeing out there in terms of the better implementations of that kind of purpose like how are you seeing technology being used to do that and but think that a two-sided question in that what are the table stakes you think that exist right now and what are the better kind of implementations over top of that so I'll come at that maybe slightly sideways, but I think in a way that makes sense, which is in terms of table stakes and, and foundation to, to be able to do all the things we just talked about. Advisors, you know, at the end of the day, time is, is the limiting factor. Time is the most precious commodity. So I'm always going to be in the camp of outsourcing everything possible and automating everything possible and leveraging machines and technology for the things that they do better than we do. So trading, rebalancing, portfolio construction, not the aspects of personalization, right? That's that's where the human advisor adds a lot of value to pull that stuff out of the client. But the blocking and tackling of trading, rebalancing, and tax management, and a lot of things that advisors still do pretty manually with spreadsheets, that for me is table stakes. Machines do it better and it just takes up time. It could be the reason a lot of advisors got into the business in the first place, and they like doing it. But that is, that's where we have to get over ourselves. And to your point, we're in service to our clients. It's not about us, it's about them. So you have to make some of those, those decisions around what, what is really high up on the value chain that I can uniquely bring value to, and what else can I, can I automate? And that goes, I guess, to part two of that, which is Digital engagement, there's a whole lot of things out there in terms of how elements that a that a client can articulate that they are actually quite happy to do themselves through a digital portal of some sort. And again, they're in control. It's about them. It's about their plan. It frees up the, cl- front, the, the advisor 
from spending a lot of time on this on these intake elements, and they can focus on, I think you, you may have said it, more of the whys and, and digging deeper and helping the client understand what is the money for, where is the pain and what's on their mind versus the kind of the groundwork. So foundational digital engagement portals that help a client both initially get onboarded, but then also ongoing have a way where they can be interacting and collaborating and updating. And for me, a good client portal now is as a client, I've got an easy way as thing ha- things happen and I wake up at, in the middle of the night thinking about something or something changes in my life to go in. It's for me. It's not for my advisor, but my advisor, obviously, I want them to understand what's going on in my head. But it's a tool for me to make sure that things I'm thinking about are, are being addressed and that I have content. I'm jumping around, but I think the the ability to find content that's relevant to what I'm I'm thinking about and, and focusing on, that's another big part of the value add. Yeah. Well, I mean, you touched a lot, a lot of stuff there. I'll go back to the one of the first points you made about maybe that's why they got into business. I like to say the heavy lifting of this business is actually a very little value, right? Like that's the repetitive administrative stuff that, as you said, technology is far better at. Like we don't deliver. For anyone who thinks that spending 10 hours developing a financial plan when maybe there's a technology that can do it in two or preparing all the paperwork is what you get paid for, oh boy, are you in for a rude awakening in the future? Because that is something other people are going to take advantage of technology of and, and undercut you like crazy. And there's some there's some phenomenal stuff that's coming out now, leveraging uh, natural language processing to go through tax returns and wills and estate documents and, oh, and no kidding. You know, on and on and on. That not only does it save tons of time, it can it's going to result in better advice provision. And one thing I love about those tools is, especially from a prospecting standpoint, you need to be able to show a prospect very early on. You've got insights that you know, are, are going to shake them out of their complacency. Be like, wow, I, I need to work with Jason because he's giving me ideas and finding gaps in what I'm doing or things I could be doing better that no one's brought to me. So those tools, especially... And it's all, yeah, there's the low-hanging fruit when it comes to investments. You know, your existing holdings don't match what you're telling me in terms of your risk profile or you're overpaying, kind of the simple stuff. But the bigger bang stuff is going to be around taxes and estate planning and things that, can I help you beat a benchmark by 15 basis points? Maybe, maybe not. But I can make a huge difference in your life on some of these other matters. Yeah, well, and that's what I always tell clients, especially when they come to me with a very like market-focused concern. It's like, look, you live your life the way you see fit. Does it really matter what happens in your portfolio if, as long as it ensures that you get to do that with a very high degree of, mar- of, of certainty? And no one's ever asked them that question. And the answer ends up being, yeah, like you're right. Like, just let me live my life and leave behind what I want to leave behind. And everything else is just, yeah, noise. So it's not surprising. I think, you know, when... <laughs> To me, it's 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 just taking a planning centric approach, right? I think when you take a planning centric approach, you have to take a client centric approach. But let me let me flip this back to the to the portal. You mentioned some very interesting points there. One came down to the the way you talked about. Let me at middle of the night go in and basically play with stuff or put in some changes and 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 or maybe even have content. Two key points there. One. I mean, you've seen the statistics on how little clients actually sign into their portals, right? And people have always quoted this as like, oh, no, you know, they only sign in so much. And it's like, well, what have we done to make it compelling other than showing them a number, right? Like nothing. There's a, there's, nothing. there's a complete, there's a mismatch, right? There, and this is probably, if not the number one, it's in the top three of every every client that I that I consult with is 
is, yeah, my digital, I know portals are important. I know I need to have a better digital engagement process, but the portals, the traditional portals out there in no way, shape or form match the, let's say I even do a good job at all the things we talked about in terms of a planning centric approach, really, you know, doing a great job in discovery, then the portals don't reflect that. I just had this, this great conversation about goals and values and all of these things. And maybe, well, well, we'll get into it. The I've got a lot of energy around how, how do you get that non-CFO spouse in, engaged? And there's some some good tools and techniques to do that. But again, the portal, it's I go there to see my my market values and my maybe my net worth, but there's no real value in that. And those are I could have an account with mint personal capital, you name it. There's that that stuff is is easy. Yeah. It's not adding a lot of value. And a lot of that stuff, it doesn't, the fact that my account went up or down a little bit this day or this week, whatever, it's not engaging. So how how do I have a portal that reflects the stuff that matters to me? And, you know, we'll, we'll, I'm sure get into AI side. For for me, some of the best AI use cases beyond the the back office automation, RPA stuff is engagement. Mm -hmm. And some of the firms that are furthest ahead, at least here in the US, along AI and next best action processes, they got to the point where it's not about, it's not about next best action, which is shorthand for a lot of firms, next best product. It's really about next best, what I'm calling now NBE, next next best engagement based on what matters to my client. And maybe even the stuff like they're they're searching around for on my site or somewhere else. I understand what's going on in their head. I see how what they respond to in terms of different types of vehicles. And I can be very proactive and more automated to respond to to what's going on in their life. Agreed. It's uh, I've seen several use cases where it's you harvest the information from articles they've clicked on in the past, and you start that information is valuable in many ways. It can inform what's on their mind currently, or it could simply just be what they're passionate about, and that helps you deepen that relationship. But I also think it's kind of it's clearly a non-digital company's failure to understand the opportunity set presented to them. And what I mean by that is if you had a digital startup that had people on average logging in once a month to look at something, they would look at that once a month opportunity and be like, how do we make this once a day? And they would obsess about it. And they would just try to drive as much value down the throat of that at that entry point as possible. And if any tech startup got from once a month to once a day, the valuation multiple just on attention is just enormous because the most valuable currency in the digital realm is attention, right? Because once you have that, you can monetize in countless ways. And I feel like our industry has been so spoiled by the fact that we've had this like, eh, it's working, but it's barely working. What do we do? Well, we were not really sure. Let's give them some live quotes now. Like it's completely missing the point and failing to say, how do we like, legitimately make them want to open up our portal or our app as the first thing they look at every morning. And that is the kind of unique opportunity that exists in this industry that I haven't seen anyone take hold of yet. And I think it, it comes from a from a mindset of, I have to believe that the value that I'm providing goes beyond financial. And you look at, there's reams of, reams of research showing that, that clients, they, they want to engage an advisor an objective expert third party in all these non-financial issues. They just, they're not demanding it because the bar is not there yet. But whether it's it's dealing with aging parents, thinking about their life after, I won't call it retirement, but after life after full-time work, 
what that looks like dealing with adult children and, and issues around that, wealth transfer, you name it. It's all those non you know, above the line type issues that they're desperately looking for for help with. And we're in such a fantastic position to provide that that assistance. But it comes from a mindset of I don't think about every engagement or every piece of value I'm providing as as directly turning into AUM going up and making money off of AUM. And I'm not one to obviously there's there's lots of debates going on around the pricing models. I think advisors can do everything we're talking about with any pricing model, as long as that's what's motivating you. Yeah. And Maul, I think there's a lot of, you know, and we've seen this, there's a lot of defaults and traction around those defaults, right? You know, we'll pick on the 1% as an advisor fee, for example. You see everybody charging 1% and a lot of people getting away with doing very little for it. Do you necessarily think about doing a heck of a lot more for it or charging, you know, being able to charge a premium price around that greater experience? I feel like, again, the default becomes so powerful in this industry, whereas few people actually challenge themselves to go beyond that. But flipping back to the entire portal argument, like yep. you, give, give me the most, give me examples of the most compelling uses you've seen that you already talked about NextFX engagement and, and using that, that using the portal as a means of that. Like what else have you seen out there in terms of being able to just grab onto the client's attention and truly show them that that firm is listening and focusing to what it is they're coming, they're, they're basically caring about? Well, I'm not, I, I try to shy away from any specific firms, but in general, it's, well, I touched on this before and I'll, I'll dive in, especially where you're dealing with a couple. Mm-hmm. This has been an area where the industry has been absolutely horrendous in terms of getting both members of that, of that couple engaged in the process. And by definition, if you don't do that, you're going to often end up with a very investment centric engagement or, or relationship because you don't know what makes these people tick. And they frankly probably have not had a lot of conversations amongst themselves. So tie it back to the portal, then then I'll build out on that. A a portal experience that begins with planning and where you have a couple begins with a planning process that gets both members of that couple engaged. And it's not going to be about the simple stuff like, okay, what when do you want to retire? And now let's just run some calculators and okay, to do that, you have to save this much. And okay, now you have a financial plan. <laughs> no, you don't. We don't know anything about what your life could look like and mm-hmm. what matters to each one and helping them get on the same page. And and that probably makes some advisors nervous because it's it's veering into the territory of advisor as as life planner, as as mm-hmm. psychologist. But if the whole point is how do we help help these people leverage their wealth to enjoy their lives and do the things that are meaningful to them and matter to them. You're nowhere. So portal, having a having a, a digital capability that can get both members of the of the family engaged in the in a process in terms of things that matter to them is very much a starting point. And then having means to do that back to what we were talking about before on, on an ongoing basis. I mean, it just adds huge value. Advisors that get a couple, especially at inflection points like I'm a year, two years out of potentially retiring or stepping down from full-time work, what does that look like? Where do we want to live? What are the issues we have to think about in terms of healthcare? What, what, you know, how, how are we going to continue to find purpose post full-time work? That is tremendous value and has huge implications around a financial plan and how they want to optimize their assets. 
So let's talk about the future and where you see things heading. What are the technological trends that excite you the most and specifically the application within our industry? Because of course, broad terms like artificial intelligence, like they can be applied all over the place, right? So tell me what you're seeing, what you're looking forward to and what really, what you're telling people to watch out for. Well, AI is certainly a key opportunity, but I'll, I'll say AI within our industry defined as augmented intelligence versus artificial. Yeah, there's artificial intelligence opportunities with RPA and all, but the ones I'm most excited about are augmented intelligence, where I come in each day as an advisor, and I've got my CRM and my data and everything in my plan, everything connected and flowing. So I know who I should be talking to about what in a very meaningful way. It's a, from a productivity standpoint, that's going to be key. And from a, in terms of deepening my relationships with my clients, it's going to be key. So augmented intelligence overlays on top of CRMs because the CRMs, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in whatever you want to call them, hedgehog factories from Jim Collins. It's hard for companies to do a lot of things really well. So mm-hmm. I find some of the more specialized firms that are really deep diving into how do we, how do we read signals coming out of the data and out of what is in the advisor's head captured in CRM and what's what's being plugged in directly by the client to tell me, here are the things that matter to this client and what I should be talking to them about and how I should be talking to them in a way that makes them feel very engaged. I can't believe we've made it this far with, without using the term hyper-personalized. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's very is, true. But I'll leverage it now because that's really what this is about is, is being able to hyper-personalized, you know, treat my client as a as a universe of one around what matters to them and helping them figure that stuff out. I think there's good research that shows once you start beyond initial planning, once you start to introduce possibilities to clients, their goals change because they just didn't have the framework to think about these things. They don't, there's no school lessons in this stuff. They kind of have to figure out by themselves. So the ability to intelligently guide and introduce possibilities based on what I know about you through augmented intelligence, I think that's going to become more and more of a, of a baseline practice standard. So it's interesting because some of the things you talked about, I want to go back to. So really with the CRMs, you're talking more so about data mining because I mean, that seems to be the catch-all software tool for where we're going. And I mean, I still remember seeing some of like Salesforce's early implementations of their Einstein product. Yep. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. I have no data in my Salesforce is going to actually get you that result yet. So talk to me in a couple of years. But back to the AI piece, this is something I've encountered when I when clients have seen like financial planning software that has had AI thrown at it. It's the almost immediate response of so many of them is like, oh my God, is the client even going to need me anymore? And again, I'll go back to your comment about augmented intelligence. It's like, yes, the client's still going to need you because just because the software says do this, doesn't mean that matches the human being, let alone does the human being understand the why that even got promoted, like got presented. Like there's so much bridge built and it has to be done between the digital and personal realm there. So that makes a lot of sense. Well, and to that point, again, yeah, what do I see in the future? I see more advisors leveraging robo type capabilities. I mean, there, there, there's a lot Absolutely. of sophistication available where it's not just a cookie cutter model portfolio, but it comes from a place of confidence and strength to say, look, that's not my value. And I can still have some controls over 
whatever factor tilts and and how I think about portfolio construction. So it's not like mm-hmm. I'm just going to have a completely cookie cutter solution, but put that into the hands of the of the client. We already see them doing it. We know lots mm-hmm. and lots of advised clients are cheating. Let's call it cheating on the side with yep. some experimentation, whether it's on a robo solution or a crypto or, or whatever it is, even on the private side. Let's own that. Let's make that part of our offering, make it a really good experience and be comfortable that our value, to your point, it's it's the interpretation and the guidance and the education that sits on top of that. So I think we'll see Robo's kind of had a bad name, especially in the advisor community and lots of- Only because they clients felt aren't asking for it. Yeah, let's be honest. They unlocked the code, right? Like before the Robo's came on the scene, they unlocked the code of like simplified onboarding, yep. clean presentation of, of the actual performance, and simplified portfolio rebalancing. Like they they unlocked that and good for them because if they hadn't, we'd still be doing a bunch of complicated nonsense we don't need to do and, and still have crappy experiences. So there's a, yep. there's a lot, yeah, and there's, it's not where it needs to be yet in terms of the taking the friction out of it and really doing it in a way where it's optimized for an advisor hybrid type, type of experience. So, you know, between the kind of digital oriented custodians and some of the the front-end providers, they're getting there. So we're in way better shape than we were even two, three years ago. But we also, we need to help those solutions get to scale. We need more advisory firms that are really adopting and looking at it as a offensive play versus a defensive play, which is how a lot of firms, a lot of banks in particular have, have looked at it. Let's go back to the hyper-personalization. That's one of the bigger trends we've seen in terms of advisor growth patterns, especially in the U.S., is Advisors who tend to focus in concentrated niches are growing at far yeah. faster rates than not like advisors who aren't. Do you think that, I mean, or this maybe this might is the answer to both of this question is both will work. I look at this in this hyper-personalization trend and say, okay, this may make a lot of the service everybody advisors who aren't niching just feel the need to not do that because the technology is doing it versus the, I'm sure that the people who are niching will be able to even tweak that a little bit more. Do you think that there's, and, and frankly, let me just state my, my preference here. I think the entire industry is better off by niche development because you can basically cater to a small group of people incredibly well at a deeper level. And again, it's the old master of one versus uh, jack, of, jack of all trades, master of none issue. Right. So I love that trend. Do you think there's a, tr- a danger of that reversing and maybe that that kind of differential between growth patterns basically disappearing because of the ability for technology to help with hyper-personalization? No, I, there's always going to be big national brands that just by default have to service everybody. But I think even there, and this gets to some of the the business strategy work I'm doing with some of those firms is you can still have that, you know, almost make it a hub and spoke where you've got a centralized chassis and you get that operating leverage and scale, but you can support more specialized practices because yeah, that everything that we've been talking about in terms of the technology and the client experience and planning, you can just be so much better. And then obviously from a business development standpoint, so much more mm-hmm. successful because you become known in those circles, whether you're serving pilots or dentists or whoever it is, teachers, corporate executives, private company, software, technology execs. Yeah. I mean that there's no question. We've seen all the stats growing faster delivering better experiences because, I mean, it's just logic. You're going to be that much more knowledgeable. And if you believe in a all the things we've talked about, the non-financial issues leading with planning, by definition, you're going to be able to do that better for a, for a niche group. 
Another kind of personalization trend is direct indexing. You know, I was just going to go there. You're reading my mind. <laughs> Great months. And we're just in the infancy of this, right? Like we're still in like the earliest of early innings on direct indexing. Like, do you see that literally becoming the default going forward in the future? Or, I mean, there's still efficiencies of scale that come to pooled products, right? And the reality is a lot of people are served by the cookie cutter. I know the cookie cutter has a very negative connotation to it, but there's only so many use cases. And if you focus on a certain segment of the market, the cookie cutter could service 80%. Maybe not the way, maybe not to the same level of satisfaction, but pretty close to it. So with that thinking, does direct indexing have legs to become the default? I would look. I would. I look at direct indexing and custom indexing as a good example of. I think it was was it Bill Gates with his. Everything happens more slowly in the short term, like over the next two years, but then ten years, whatever that, that, that quote is. Yeah. But yeah, it's one of these things. Is the world going to look dramatically different in the next two to three years? No, but the you know if you look at growth rates coming off of a smaller base, the growth rates for direct indexing depending on how it's measured, is it's going to be off the charts. I've been predicting for a while, and, and I, I know didn't take much of a crystal ball to see what was happening with the big retail brokerage firms that you're going to see, you're seeing it now from the, the major ones of the U.S. They're going to be bringing these capabilities out to the, to the mass market, the mass affluent, some cases before they're bringing it to their RIA custody clients, which is always fun. Contentious. Um, <laughs> So the major use cases are going to be high net worth taxable accounts where you can just mm. add tremendous lift for those folks when you're transitioning and all and, and just the ability to customize and apply ESG and, and all the and basically all the promise of SMAs over the past 30 years, but delivered in a in a through through a custom indexing solution, bring costs down. And certainly if you believe all the predictions of a very low rate, low return yeah. decade, it's going to put more pressure on costs for at least asset management, not necessarily yeah. advice and, and planning. So I think that that'll start to light a fire under firms as well. And all you got to do is look at every major asset manager buying a direct indexer as proof yeah. they're not stupid people and they're they're covering they're covering all sides of the bet. Yeah, no surprise when Vanguard did. It was like, well, there isn't. I think my post was, no kidding. This was this was going to happen. The the one question I still have, I think, was Bill Winterberg brought it up on Twitter one time. It's like direct indexing, yes, fifty page statements, no. <laughs> like at the end of the day, sure, it might be a PDF, but man, the, the reporting see, dynamic. <laughs> I don't think I engage with Bill on on that one, but I've I've been seeing that argument for. A couple decades with SMAs and UMAs. Yeah, I don't put a lot of stock in that. If you educate your client, it's like you know, educate them. Don't you're not going to focus on your custodial statement. You're going to focus on on our performance report, which is about yeah. you, your goals, and ignore all that other crap. But it is about yeah. education. If you, if you don't educate your client, they can be like, yeah, what what the hell is all this trading activity? What are you what are you doing? Yeah, I just think back to the time that the iPhone launched and AT&T hadn't worked out the billing right and I, Justine, received a 300-page iPhone bill. I think to myself, <laughs> like, the last thing I need is a client receiving a custodial statement in the mail that's, like, literally 300 pages. It's, yes, it's a tough one. Yeah, go, you finish, finish the thought. Well, I think the bigger concern there is the, is the tax reporting, right? Like, that's a lot of potential slips, right? Like, that's a lot of potential transactions and, and watching out for wash trades and all kinds of stuff. It's... Uh, I mean, the reporting will evolve to make that simplified. I mean, I have no doubt, but I just think that there's probably going to be a little bit of friction at the early days. Yeah, it's like, but with like taxes, it's one of those things where, yeah, you're 
you know, make things a little more complicated. But if the results warrant it, it makes sense. I was just going to come back quickly before we run out of time on, on specialization. Now, this is a big category, so it's hard to call it specialized. But if I was an advisor right now, and maybe part of it is just where I am in, in my life, there's no question. I am just completely 100% focused on, on pre-retirees, 10,000 boomers turning 65 a day in the U.S., like we talked about early on, kind of the psychological aspects of, well, and and for many, the real yeah. aspects of, of COVID and, and changes in employment, whether voluntary or involuntary. Everyone's life is is turned upside down to some degree. I'm all over that. You know, focusing on on helping them make those, think those things through, understand Medicare, longevity planning, long-term care, mm-hmm. all those aspects that go way, way beyond asset management. I agree with you. And it's funny because I mean, not funny, but I mean, the further to what you talked about, what does retirement look like? And we got my business partners kind of carved out a niche in particular in dealing with people transitioning to retirement, the early stages of retirement, which we can talk about the retirement risk zone from a from a sequence of return standpoint. I like to talk of it from the they're going insane standpoint. What I mean by that is this entire like, oh my God, I'm, I'm actually going to stop working. What does that look like? Maybe I'm not ready to work. What am I going to do with all this time? And and realizing that retirement was this distant thing they were, they were going to plan for eventually, and now it's imminent and they haven't planned for it. And not even if we tell them it's done from a financial standpoint, it's like, what am I going to do with myself, right? And then it's the first couple of years of what do I do with myself? I have all this free time and now I'm really nervous and the market's doing poorly. And there's there's a very delicate and stern hand that has to help them transition through what I call the first the first 10 years, the first five into retirement and the first five of retirement. By then, they've settled in, right? They've, they've created a new norm. Yeah, I but could I, not agree more. Yeah. It's, and they just, they don't have the tools. They don't they don't know what's possible. And, and something I'm passionate about is especially, you know, there's a whole bunch of folks that, and we haven't spent a lot of time on on you know the democratization democratization of finance at all, and you know, that's where I think robo solutions are, are are great. But on the wealthier end, there's a lot of people that financially could afford to do things differently earlier earlier on, and don't because they they don't know what's possible, and yeah. they just they keep on going. I'm a believer that advisors can help guide clients too look at different work arrangements where they can actually take advantage of the wealth that they've accumulated and give them permission to spend more and do things differently when they can still take advantage of it. Because we know spending goes down, down, down for quite a while till it goes up because of healthcare costs. And a lot of people, they just save and save, and then they you know, have all these assets and they don't spend them down because they're yeah. not able to. Yeah. Well, they're not able to either physically or mentally because, I mean, there's always the the old dog's new trick scenario. You can't have someone be frugal for 20, 30 years of their lives, hoping to be secure in retirement. And then they think they're going to change their behavior to the point where they're tricking around the world cruises and then they're going to enjoy it. Like, no, you haven't developed the muscle to spend money. <laughs> like, you, you are believe so it or not. It, yeah. The it, best it, savers are often the worst spenders. So Gavin, that was fantastic. I thank you so much for your time. I actually love the fact we spent more time talking about the planning world than we did about the technology world, because again, <laughs> it's all in service of the strategy, not the other way around. So before we go, I definitely wanted to plug a couple of your things like your your blog, your newsletter, and your your podcast as well, Wealth Management Version 2.0. All great resources for anyone who wants to check out, again, the future of technology as it develops in real time. Gavin, thank you so much. Thank you, Jason.
And that was the 200th episode of uh, FinTech Impact. If you hear a little bit of exhaustion in my voice, it's because uh, it's a lot to think about that I've done 200 of these, but it's been a wonderful, wonderful road. And I plan on keeping them going. And I hope you plan on continuing to listen. And then, like I said, be sure to check out, check out all of Gavin's resources on his website. And that can be found at uh, wealthconsultingpartners.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, as always, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Spotify, or wherever it is eat your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.